The insanity starts when I am six years old. He forced me to pose naked at the age of six and a half. Even though I was protesting and crying and saying I didn't want to do it, he made me do it. And the pictures were seductive. They were, they were wrong. He could have gone to prison for that today. I knew that was wrong. I knew he was wrong. Welcome to the shame game. Shame thrives in secrecy but loses all its power when we bring it to light. This show is all about embracing vulnerability and finding connection through our shared experiences of shame. In each episode, we'll talk with a new guest where we'll dive into their stories and experiences and learn how to break free from shame and love ourselves just that little bit more. So sit back, relax, and let's get ready to play the shame game. Hello, everybody. This is Eleni, and welcome to another episode of The Shame Game. And in today's shame game, we're going to be talking about the shame of having a mentally ill father and what that feels like and what that felt like for the our guest that we're going to have today. And our guest is Veronica Monet. Is that how we pronounce your surname, Veronica? It's just like Claude Monet, but unfortunately no relationship. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we, it's Veronica Monet, who is a sex positive activist and has been featured on CNN, Fox, Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect Yale, Stanford and the New York Times. Her first book, Sex Secrets of Escorts, has been translated into four languages. Veronica has personally healed from addiction, abuse, sexual assault and more Me Too moments than she can count. (laughs) Veronica, Veronica is also a sexologist and trained rape and domestic violence counselor. Veronica helps people heal shame and sexual trauma so they can rebirth their emotional and sexual reality to be an authentic expression of their deepest truths. And that's what we're here to talk about today is Veronica's deepest truths. And so, yay, let's do this, Veronica. Thank you so much for coming on. I know that you've got your own podcast. Yeah. To do with shame, and we're going to be putting those notes on the show notes um, as well. But let's just start at the very beginning, start at the very beginning. And this is an interesting topic. And, you know, prior to our, you know, this episode starting, you did mention that there were a number of topics we could talk about, but this is an interesting one that I know many people would be able to relate to, which is the shame of having a mentally ill parent so how did you even discover uh that your father was mentally ill how did that happen for you oh yeah that's a great question Uh, just briefly I'm going to back up just a tiny bit because you mentioned the book sex sex secrets of escorts which by the way has been translated into four different languages and it's through penguin um but that's that's an 18 year old book and what I want to say is um you know, we were talking about my um, my time in the sex industry before we started the show. And I didn't have any shame about that, but the world certainly felt like I should have felt ashamed of it. And um, what's fascinating to me is my shame burden is really about my dad. It's the fact mm. that he was mentally ill. And... Mm. Um, 
How did I come to know that? You know, you don't as a kid. You think that daddy is all powerful, all wise, that he's um, going to save you and protect you and take care of you. And my father loved me a lot. But the thing is, is that he had this other side. And that other side was really mean. Uh, what I knew early on was mm. that he had it in him to kick a stray cat that was just balancing itself on two legs uh, who had befriended me. And he kicked it so hard it went flying up into the air like 20 feet. And I remember I was like four and I thought, well, I just lost my only friend. And um, my dad stormed into the house and slammed the door and probably went in there to yell at my mom because he almost always made my mom cry. And I never knew why, but I just knew that he made her cry. And I really hated him. I hated the sound of his car coming down the driveway and knowing that he was coming home because the whole mood in the house would change to something dark. And until he got home, um, my mother was playing her accordion and my sister and I were dancing and watching Romper Room and um, I Love Lucy and all the old shows that were still playing when I was a kid on our black and white TV. And um, then dad would come home and everything got somber. So um, I just kind of saw him as this monster who I wanted to stay clear of. By the way, the cat did come back to talk to me over and over again. And what I learned was that cat had more courage and love in his heart than my dad did. That was a startling mm. discovery at such a young age. But you know what happens yeah. the longer you are in a toxic environment. And I really do believe this is my belief system. We come here pretty in touch with what's real, what's right, what's wrong. And it slowly gets um, taken out away from us and our, our filters and our denial systems come in and we just can't tell right from wrong anymore. So, you know, by the time I'm eight years old, I don't see my dad as the monster anymore. I see him as the guy that I want to align myself with. And I don't realize that it's because I'm afraid of him. And I want to get on his good side so he'll be nice to me and not make me cry like he makes mom cry. You don't know that stuff yeah. when you're little. But no. the insanity starts when I am six years old. Okay, so certainly he's mean when he comes home and kicks the cat and makes my mom cry. But now he's starting to do crazy things like he forced me to pose naked at the age of six and a half. Mm -hmm even though I was protesting and crying and saying, I didn't want to do it. He made me do it. And the pictures were seductive. They were, they were wrong. He could have gone to prison for that today. Um, I don't know that they would mm -hmm. have done that to him then because it was a long time ago, but I knew that was wrong. I knew he was wrong. And um, I was very angry at my mother because she didn't stop him. She wasn't there to protect me. So by the time I'm eight, my dad has moved our family of four, because I had a younger sister, into a little teeny tiny, and I do mean tiny trailer. It was 18 and a half feet from the hitch to the bumper, and it was 
an old fashioned trailer. It's not like today's RVs. You could go find yourself a 20 footer now that would maybe feel kind of luxurious. This was not that. If you try to buy one of these today, they are literally sold as tin cans. So for five and a half mm -hmm. years, our family of four lived in this little tin can. And what it provided him with was an opportunity to supervise everything we did. And his mental illness starts showing up as obsessive compulsive disorder and a terrible fear of germs. Mm -hmm. So he had, he made it, made us, since he's got us in this little teeny container, he can watch everything we do. He starts um, making all kinds of rules about how we're going to um, bathe ourselves, how we're going to dry ourselves off with towels, how we are supposed to wash our hands after tying our shoes, uh, how my mother is supposed to wash a head of lettuce. Um, and the, the rules just get more and more strict until finally we are not allowed to touch our food. So I couldn't eat a sandwich without using a napkin to hold the sandwich. And I mm -hmm. couldn't pick up a potato chip or a kernel of corn with my fingers. I had to use my tongue. So I literally ate popcorn out of a bowl like a dog. Mm -hmm. And that's all by the time I'm eight. So okay. the sensation I had as a child was, where does it stop? The rules just got weirder and weirder. And he started collecting guns. And he's a welder. It's not real poverty stricken, but we're pretty poor, actually. And he's not allowing us to go to public school. In fact, he doesn't even care if we get an education. So my mother is desperately trying to locate these correspondence courses so that we can get an education. And um, he has no respect for it. Um, there were times that he would just come, uh, you know, close my textbook so I'd lose my place and say, put that stuff away. I have a real, real work for you to do. And then make me go outside and do chores. So it's, it's hard wow. to explain this. It's very, very difficult. I've tried to explain it to um, my first husband, actually. I told him my dad would not let me go to public school. My dad would not let me cross the street. My dad would not let me to have any friends. I could not go to church with my mother. Um, I was in prison mm -hmm. from basically the beginning of my life until I left home at 18. So, yeah. Veronica, with regards to how did your mum fit into all of this? So what was her role while your dad was, you know, ruling with this iron fist? What was – how was she responding? Was she – how was she explaining, responding, supporting? How was she doing that? She um, had joined a – what's called a doomsday cult. Is it a right-wing Christian cult that believed that the end okay. of the world was coming? And they took the entire Bible literally. So they believed in the Old Testament, which meant no birthdays, no Christmas, and no pork, no seafood. Um, and they regulated how the women dressed. And the women were not allowed to talk in church except to do special music. So it, it was also an incredibly crazy, insane, um, oppressive, misogynistic institution. And my mother... Uh, bought into that. So even though my dad didn't belong to the cult, 
her instructions from her cult was um, wives submit unto your husbands, even as the church does unto Christ. So whatever my dad said had to go. And that came down to, I'm going to tell you something that your Ooh. viewers are probably going to really get. Oh, he is crazy. My grandmother, my mom's mom came to visit us and we were out of butter and milk. And she said, well, let's go up to the corner drugstore and get some butter and milk. And my mom said, oh, no, no. Um, you know, my dad's name was Jim. He's dead now, so I can use his name. But Jim won't let us go anywhere. We have to stay in the trailer. And my grandmother said, well, that's, that's insane. That's crazy. We're just going up the block to get some butter and milk. So when my dad came home and he saw that there was a thing of butter and a thing of milk in the refrigerator, he got very angry, wanted to know how we left the house and why we left the house and told mm -hmm. my mother that because she had been disobedient, she was going to have to get a spanking and my mother let him do it. So and that's your grandmother, what did she say? Well, grandma Your was grandmother saying, at this time? Uh, we're in a little teeny trailer. There's no room for grandma to sleep there. So she's in a hotel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So how did you know that this was not, you know, the behavior of all fathers? How did you make that comparison yeah. in your mind? That is a really good question. And I wish I could tell you exactly how. I will tell you what I think retrospectively. Mm -hmm. Since I'm not having contact with the outside world, all I have is what's inside of me. And mm -hmm. there is some part of me that's not buying into this. Even though on the outside, I'm trying to be an obedient girl, I'm part of the cult. I read the Bible religiously. I memorize Bible verses and I really do believe the world's going to end. And I, I'm very upset that wives are supposed to submit unto their husbands. So I've made up my mind. I'm never going to have a husband. Um, <laughs> that was going to be my solution to that. But, um, well, if that was the rule, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. So I, but I am trying to be devout and I'm trying to be obedient. Somewhere inside, though, it just never feels right to me. And I'll tell you, I like animals. I, I start um, collecting little bugs and cartons. And there's some way in which being around even just a, a spider or an ant calmed my nervous system and connected me to the divine. And that's where I found mm -hmm. my connection more to truth. And, and eventually I started collecting... Uh, frogs and snakes and after that little rodents mm. and after that there were some birds um all of that helped me realize there's something that's not dad there's something that's not the cult and it feels more life-giving mm -hmm. to me it feels more sane somehow i and i think that was why and how i was able to keep myself separate and i I started to kind of split off, you know, and have an um, mm -hmm. imaginary world in my head where I was fantasizing about the little terrariums I was going to build for my, my little uh, tiny critters. I would literally put myself into their world. And I'm mean, to this day, I'm, I can communicate with any life form.
because I relate to them very Beautiful. well. And so that was the gift because you were given that doorway into communicating yeah. with um, other life forms. And so how did the shame play out with your father when, you know, you, you knew that my father's not well and how did that play out? You don't want anybody to know where you came from. When I, I left home, so I decided my mother used to whisper in my ear, don't make the mistake I made, go to college before you get married. Now, she wanted me to go to the Colts College, which was called Ambassador College, and I knew I wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't wait to get away from this insanity and this restrictions and all these rules and all this. I mean, church services were depressing. I finally talked my dad into letting me go to church when I was 14. He would not allow me to leave his side until I was 14, but I finally got, and then I met other people who were in the cult. Now, these are not like real progressive, you know, people, but they were people. Um, (laughs) And um, I started, I want to go to college. I want to go to college. So I applied. Being homeschooled, I had perfect grades. I was a straight A student and um I applied for a state college because we were poor and I couldn't afford anything else. I had to have grants and loans and work a job to get to to college. But um, my dad tried to talk me out of it. And he said, look, you're going to get married and have babies of your own anytime now. You're wasting your time trying to go get a college degree. You'll never use it. So, um, yeah, I thought to myself, wow, dad has, he can't even see me. He doesn't know who I am. When I get to college, I start lying. I told one person Mm -hmm. that I'd never been to public school and she was my roommate and she said, oh, you'll never make it here. And I thought the shame just washed over me. I thought, oh, I am defective. I'm not normal. I'm not going to be able to function in the real world. That was something that my my aunt had said about the way my mom and dad were raising my sister and I. She said, your daughters will be scarred for life and they'll never make it in the real world. So I carried that horrible mm-hmm. feeling that there was going to be something really defective about me and I would not be able to function. And when I got to college, okay. I really wanted to prove my aunt wrong. And here's my roommate sabotaging me too. So I decided the only solution was to lie. I talked about a high school that I never went to. I even made up a prom story that never happened. So that's, mm-hmm. that's to me, that's a pretty clear indication that I had a lot of shame and fear. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If we can't yeah. say the truth about who we are and where we've come from. And how did that actually feel inside you, that shame? What was the feeling like? Was, did you feel it in your stomach? Did you feel it in your guts? Did you feel it in your – where was it? How did it feel to you? You know, it's funny. I, Thinking back, I think it kind of made me a little bit lightheaded. Like am I really going to get – am I really going to get away with this? Like, do I have the ability to oh. fool these people? Um, so that was and create a, an identity. It was a little, a little bit giddy. Like maybe, maybe I could really pull this off, and then they'll never know, and and then they won't think less of me, and I'll fit in, and I'll be one of them. Um, which I really wanted to fit in. Oh my. 
that I wanted to fit in. Of course. Just, so, you know, just back up a little bit. What's it like to be the little kid in the trailer who never gets to, cannot leave the little the little plot that the trailer is parked on in the trailer park. You can't even go to the laundry room. You can't go run in the street with the kids. You can't play ball with them. Mm-hmm. You don't have a bicycle. There's all these things, you know, no, ba- no baseball, no softball. There's just like this whole world, no climbing trees. So many things I didn't get to do all these ways. I didn't understand the games that kids played. Um, There weren't any board games in our home. What I had as a child was very different. My dad bought me uh, a BB gun when I was 11 and a motorcycle when I was 11. So some of the boys in our neighborhood were jealous when they'd see I had this stuff, but I just never fit in. And so I wanted to seem quote unquote normal when I got to college. One of my favorite songs is John Mayer's song, There's No Such Thing as the real world. <laughs> and I'm like, cause that's, nope. that was always held over my head. You won't be able to function in the quote unquote real world. So I, by the way, I mean, you know, I turned to drugs and alcohol to numb the pain of all of this. So that's a huge part of my journey um, from age 15 to 25 um, drinking, smoking. And, and the pain would would you say the pain, Veronica, was the pain of not belonging because you came from a different background? Was that the pain of having to create this identity that even though oh, you got a little bit giddy so much, that you there's created so much. this identity? There's, there's pain coming from all levels. There's pain of feeling like my mother wasn't there for me. There's the pain of that punishing cult that had convinced me that God was going to strike me dead if I didn't stay in the cult. There was the pain of my father mm-hmm. molesting my sister and I. Um, mm-hmm. you know, later on, I found out that our cult had been founded by a man who molested his daughter. I mean, I was just surrounded by people that molested their kids. And um, yeah. there's the pain of the domestic violence my dad perpetrated against my mother. There's the fact that my father was not kind to animals and people who perpetrate to the scale that he did often use cruelty to animals as a way to keep you in line. There's just so much pain. I, I, um, I was later diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD. So it's so basically you had no, you had no center, you had no safety, no center, no, nobody you could depend on apart from yourself. And like you said, your connection to, the natural world because you could because they, they weren't going to do anything bad to you whereas no. the adults in your life who were supposed to support you um you they let you down all of them all of them i even when i was 17 i because dad let me go to church at 14 by the time i was 17 there was a boy at church that i had become fond of and i thought i was in love with him and um, my dad wasn't going to allow me to date. He was never going to allow me to date. I, I thought I was going to be his prisoner mm-hmm. for life if I didn't get out of there. And so let's talk about the shame of coming from a poor, uneducated family. My mother had a high school diploma, but my dad did not. His mother only had a third grade education. She was from West Virginia. I had an uncle, my dad's older brother, 
who molested all of his kids and beat all of his kids and they stayed at home with him. They never left. Yeah. I was terrified that that was going to be my fate. And I was very ashamed to have that as my family legacy, that those are the people I came from. Um, Mm. It's embarrassing. You know, I, of course now, I have compassion for these people. I know that there was incest in that lineage for generations and all of them have suffered. Um, But at the time you don't know that it's just like, what a bunch of freaks. And this is where I come from. I want out Mm -hmm. of here. I can tell you what my journey with myself has been, which is very much about, um, reaching back compassionately um, to heal what happened and also to heal the generations that came before me. So my compassion does not stop with the little girl that I was. It goes back to my dad who had seven Mm -hmm. abusive brothers. It goes back to my mother who was molested by her grandfather It goes back to my grandmother who was molested by her dad and my other grandmother who was molested by her her brothers. This is what was called a legacy burden. And I, I believe in the act of healing myself, I am healing, creating healing with a forward movement for future generations, but then I'm also creating healing back in time. So... I, um, yes, you know, to answer your question, I've done that deep work of going back and reparenting my inner child and loving her up and being there for her. And I'm, I'm at a place where I'm actually going back and being there for my ancestors too. How how did you find that compassion for your ancestors? Where did you get that from that compassion for your ancestors? That all starts with compassion for myself. Mm -hmm. And, And also really, look, my belief is that the ways in which I did not carry that perpetration forward, the ways in which I didn't harm is grace. I do not believe that it's something I did. I could have easily been these people, but I was given the grace not to do that so that I could try to heal myself and others through this. And I'm, I'm just grateful. I don't feel superior. I don't feel better than I feel super grateful and not being in a place of resentment really allows that compassion to flow. You know, I'm, I'm uh, trained in internal family systems, IFS. I'm not certified in it, but I am informed about it and trained. And I, I bring that to my clients as a coach, being able to move into a place that's self-directed is huge for me mm-hmm. because when I'm in self, I'm, I'm embodying these compassion, clarity, confidence, um, creativity, calm. So these beautiful qualities. And I have parts inside of me that definitely get pulled off in one direction or another. But I, um, I called my dad just three weeks before he died, and he died seven years ago. And, um, you know, he was mentally ill. My dad died 
in a mobile home with black plastic nailed to the insides of all the windows because he was so terrified. And he had five gun safes in his bedroom, every single one of them loaded with guns and ammo. He had five chains across his bedroom door. This is a person that's living in terror. Mm, How could I not have compassion for that? How could I not just feel the pain and the agony of being him? Now, he created a lot of suffering. He created Mm. a tremendous amount of suffering. But I forgave him. And I forgave him because I see his trauma too. And when I called him up, all I said was, Daddy, I love you. And he said, he started to cry. And he said, I know, I love you too. But here's the thing. I really want to make sure that I share this. I'm not all about Mm -hmm. forgiveness. There's so many ways. I thought I'd forgiven my father when I first got clean and sober in 1985. And I called him up to tell him, I forgive you. (laughs) I wasn't ready to forgive my dad. I wanted to. It was a nice intention. I had to unpack so much rage, so much resentment, so much bitterness, so much pain. And that took years. There is no spiritual bypassing this. It is hard work. It's hard work, and you have to have boundaries. I've stayed away from him. I was not in his physical presence. Sometimes you have to love people from afar. Sometimes you cannot have them in your orbit because they're dangerous. My father was a dangerous man, and he got more dangerous with each passing year. He never walked anywhere without a gun on his hip towards the end. Yeah. What I'm hearing you say is that that this forgiveness work and this compassion work, there's no bypassing it. We, we need to do it. But to get there, there's a lot of pain before then. And you also need to protect your energy. You need to protect your space. You need to have boundaries. So it's yeah. not like, yep, I forgive you. I love you. I understand you. I understand where you came from. It doesn't just happen instantaneously. You need to really face all your fears and everything that's coming your way first and and have boundaries at the same time as give love to yourself before you give love to the others. Absolutely. So I can have compassion for my ancestors because I've got a lot of boundaries with them. Most of them have passed on at this point. But I mean, my father's energy was so dark and so demented that I kept his ashes outside until I could scatter them. I was literally afraid to have his ashes inside my house. That's a boundary I had even after he died Mm -hmm. and after I had told him that I love him. So to be able to respect your healthy boundaries and your inner knowing at the same time that you are striving for love and forgiveness, it's crucial. Your love and your forgiveness will never be authentic otherwise. That's how I see it. So if you had, um, for the viewers out there who really resonate with your story, who, you know, even if circumstances differ, if they're in some sort of relationship, whether it was their parent or someone else, who is exercising this controlling, fearful behavior, where they're feeling like they don't belong, where they're embarrassed about their background and who they are and where they've come from, what would you like to say to them, Veronica? Veronica? 
Well, it's always important to go to the fear. So what are you afraid of? Uh, that'd be the first investigation to do. Like, are you afraid that somebody won't give you a job? Are you afraid that somebody won't want to be a, your partner or your friend or your neighbor? Um, is it, do you afraid that somebody will kind of, you know, shine you on and not want you to join their, their church or their organization or come to the PTA meetings? Like these are very rare fears. We're tribal. We want to belong and we need each other. You know, we found that out with the pandemic, like, you know, when our supply chains got interrupted, oh my God, we, we, where's the people that do the things mm. we need them to do? Um, so we count yeah. on each other. And we are very interdependent. I think find the fear first, like, and it may be a real fear, maybe revealing certain things about yourself to certain people under certain circumstances isn't the wisest thing. Um, and maybe it will at some point be the bravest thing you ever do, but you're going to want to make sure that you're resourced and that you're safe. Um, and that falls on you because your number one job while you're here is to take care of you. So you've got to figure out how best to do that. And if it means never talking to somebody again, fine. But I will tell you this, if you're harboring resentments and judgments, they will eat away and harm you. And I know that from experience, you know, resentments drove me to drink. Um, getting rid of those resentments has given me the gift of sobriety. And that doesn't mean that Beautiful. then oh, everything's fine, everything's forgiven, and we'll just hang out. No, some people are just going to be out of my life for good. That's okay. But I can still yeah. love them. Even after they go. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. very interesting that you kept the ashes outside I even know. after your dad passed on. But, you know, but well, you know what to, you said to... in terms of ask yourself. Go on. Oh, there's just one little cute anecdote I want to tell you. When I went to go settle my dad's estate, he had passed on, oh. and I took um, my partner and my little dog with me. Now, my little dog was the most loyal friend in the world. She would follow me to the ends of the earth. We hiked all over the Sierras. I mean, we've just been everywhere together. And I'm just asking her to come inside the mobile home with me where, the, where my father had lived out his final days with the, all that black plastic on the windows. And she tried. Boy, she really tried. She tried to cross that threshold. And as soon as she did, she'd go right back outside. And she tried like two or three times and gave up. And I thought, that's her. She knows there's dark energy in there. So, I mean, you yeah, asked me how I know, yeah. knew my father and was insane. My little dog didn't even want to be in the house he lived in. Yeah. Yeah. It's when you, you, you feel it, it's energy. When you, even when they've left, you still can walk in and feel the energy as to whether that's, that energy makes you feel good or whether it makes you feel misaligned with who you are. You can feel it. Absolutely. But what I love, Veronica, is in terms of what would you say to the people listening out there is to ask yourself, you know, what are you afraid of? Let's go back to that question. What are you afraid of? And, and then, you know, once you work that out, resource yourself in a way that you can support yourself because, as you said, there is no one else that can do this for you. There's no bypassing. You've got to do it yourself. 
and to also at the same time make sure that your boundaries are secure and this all takes work and this is not as easy as it sounds and this is challenging but it is the way to freedom and you're an example of someone who has come out the other side has managed to break down the barriers from a you know a lineage of morbid abuse and now you're writing a memoir about it so tell us about your memoir Gladly. So it's a prescriptive memoir. And what that means is that I'm not just going to talk about my life as fascinating as it might be for some people, or at least fun for me to talk about, or I don't know if it's fun for me. I have cried so much writing this book because, you know, having to go back and really re-experience so much trauma is itself kind of traumatic, but it's also healing. Um, a prescriptive mm -hmm. memoir also gives gifts to the reader about insights about various different things that they hopefully will help them with their own life. To me, that the only reason to share my story is if it helps others. Otherwise, who cares? I care about helping us to yeah. shift things to a more loving, connected planet. So for instance, in my memoir, I talk about internal family systems and working with the parts, the parts inside of us, self and exiles and firefighters and managers and protectors. I also talk about narcissistic personality disorder. My dad definitely had that. Disassociative amnesia. Pretty sure my dad suffered from that even though he wasn't diagnosed because I'd be talking to the guy who molested me, didn't seem to... The, the other guy who said he loved me, they didn't talk to each other. And it was bizarre. It was really mind bending because you're like, mm -hmm. uh, I was just talking to you five minutes ago and you were had a different story. What's going on here? Um, I talk about domestic violence, incest, what it means to recover from sexual assault. We know now from hashtag me too that everybody's had, well, a large percentage of us of all genders have had some kind of incursion into our space sexually that has harmed us. So as you know, somebody with a background in um, rape and domestic violence recovery, I also cover those topics as well. So it's kind of a how to get better book and with a my own unique story, my own unique trauma story. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there, Veronica. There's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a, you've got a big life. And like yeah. you rightly said, I mean, in order to have had all those experiences, there's yeah. a reason why you had those experiences. There's no accidents there. You had those experiences so that you can now help others overcome yeah. them. And this is what you're doing with your memoir. So what impact do you want this memoir to have in the world? Thank you for that question. Here's the ultimate for me. You know, obviously I want people to like, if somebody had a mentally ill parent, then hopefully they'll feel supported and seen. If somebody has been gaslit and uh, love bombed by a narcissist, they'll be, they'll see that in here too. If somebody wants to learn a little bit more, how about they can apply um, IFS as a way to heal trauma that that's in there too. Ultimately, I would love mm -hmm. for us to change our cultural conversation from perpetrators and survivors or victims mm -hmm. to start talking about perpetrations 
and victimization, I would love for us to start talking about the impact of certain actions, of certain behaviors, because that path forward gives all of us an opportunity to do two things, two things. One, we can cop to the things we've done that have harmed others and heal. And two, we can also stop demonizing and putting people that perpetrate into kind of a, a no man's land. We just exile them. Nobody ever gets better. And what happens is then those perpetrations go underground and they persist. I really love for us to be able to heal our human family by bringing it out in the open and talking about it and seeing each other as humans, no matter how terrible our actions have been. Because my dad was a human being. And when I hear people talk about people like my dad should die, it hurts. It's like, you don't know, you're talking about my dad, my Mm -hmm. uncle, my grandparents. You just want to kill all of them. That's not a world I want to live in. I want to live in a world where we don't cancel people. We heal people. Here, here, Veronica. Yes, if I could do a big clap now, I would. Absolutely. The solutions that we have right now are not the solutions. That's why this behaviour is not is, is still going on because we're not seeing people as people. We're not seeing them that they have a soul inside of them, that they're also the result of someone else's actions. How do we heal that? How do we stop that circle rather than keeping that going? because it's not working. What is currently happening is not working. So I want to say a big thank you to you for speaking out, speaking up and proposing a different model. So not just saying this doesn't work, but actually proposing, well, how about we do it this way? And um, being an activist in that area, I know that um, it takes it's taken a lot of courage for you to do all of this work. And thank you for being the light worker that you are. And for, for experiencing all that you experienced in order to be here right now so that you can help the others who are listening now. So if there's one more thing you'd like to tell our listeners, what would it be? Just like if you want to find your compassion for others, you have to find your compassion for yourself first. If you want to be able to hold other people accountable while forgiving them too, You have to bring that to yourself. Hold yourself accountable for your behaviors and forgive yourself. Beautiful. I love that you've put, because, you know, we often hear the be compassionate towards yourself first, um, but we don't often hear and at the same time hold yourself accountable as well. Yes. You do both. Right. Right. Accountability starts with me. That's where it starts. What am I accountable yeah. for? What are, what are the things I need to make amends to? What are the things I need to be able to yeah. cop to? And, and I'm, I don't come off looking innocent in my memoir. I don't want to. I'm not a victim. I'm a human being mm-hmm. who was harmed by other human beings. Created and when is your memoir coming out? <laughs> um, we're in the middle of the rewrite right now. And I don't have the publisher yet, but my hope would be within another year. Oh, awesome. Well, whenever you're listening to this podcast, because it might be in another year, so it might be out, we'll put all the show notes 
uh, in the show notes, we'll put all the links to Veronica's um, own podcast and details. And so please connect in. One more thing. One more thing. I know a year sounds like terrible in in this fast moving culture. I'm going to be dropping little bits of the book and pieces of wisdom from the book Uh on my YouTube channel. Perfect. And we'll put the details down below. So make sure you're connecting with this beautiful human who's making a huge impact in the world. Thank you so much, Veronica Monet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to The Shame Game. We hope you loved it. And if you did, please subscribe to the podcast. And we would so love it if you also share it with your friends. Until next time, remember, you are not alone in this journey. We're all in this together and we are all worthy of love and belonging. And also remember this, you are not your shame.